Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Hi, folks, and welcome to the podcast. I am your co-host, Cheryl Toth, also known as Tothy. And I'm your other co-host, Mike Sakopoulos. Hey there, Tothy. Hope all is going well for you. I'm hey, excited yeah. about this podcast. Good. Good, good. So, Tothy, as we launch into this, Tell me what you think when you hear the term, get it in writing. What does that conjure up for you? Oh, get it in writing. I think that means um, it's important. Um, Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that there's a shared understanding of things. So, you know, accuracy wise, we need to put it in writing so that everyone has the same uh, under, you know, we can all go back to some sort of written document that tells us, hey, this is what we talked about and this is what we'll follow, like a, maybe like a policy or a procedure or, you know, something like that. Am I right? It, I, well, I, I think you are. And this really brings up the difference between, between you and I, because you do that in such a nice way. So, so clear forward. What it conjures up to me is a CYA event right? Something bad may happen. This is an insight into my kind of base level of paranoia. But get it in writing because you want to protect yourself uh, down down the road. So. Well, that's what, but you uh, know what? That's that's my thoughts. But Mike, let's be clear. That's what makes you such a good lawyer. I mean, you know, you're thinking in everyone's best interest, your best interest or your client. So protection, that's the name of the game. Well, bless you. uh, Bless you, (laughs) Tothi. Always makes me a real, uh, real joy as a parent too with kids. You can only imagine your <laughs> sure. reaction to, uh, uh, to to all of this. So, but it, it it's certainly it's certainly important in a medical setting, right? Whether we're talking about for coding and billing uh, purposes to be able to justify uh, what service you've you have provided, and certainly in the med mal arena, because I can tell you as a defense attorney, if it's not in the medical record. It never happened. Mm-hmm. Even if you did the work and you believe it and it just didn't make it into the chart, doesn't matter. You're going to be uh, cooked in a med mal claim. If it's not in the chart, didn't happen, not in writing, never occurred. Right. And that's why this whole concept of get it in writing is something very important from actually a variety of perspectives. And that's what we're going to talk about today, documentation. Um, it, it, you know, you, you mentioned the med mal practice. Uh, standpoint. There's also coding and billing documentation, uh, audit risk reduction. All of those things are reasons why it's such an interesting and important topic for physicians and practice leaders. So today, that's what we'll cover. Um, The episode is do's and don'ts of documentation. And we are going to talk with Betsy Nicoletti, who is a consultant, educator, and author of The Field Guide to Physician Coding, which is a Green Branch pub- publication. I think it's in its fourth edition. It's been wildly wow. popular. And um, Betsy had a whole bunch of tactical ideas for practice leaders in our interview, and I think folks are really going to like that. She shares, she's going to share some specific uh, tips for reducing audit risk, how to document medical necessity, make sure physicians and staff are operating at their highest and best use when it comes to who documents what and, you know, a little bit about modifiers and coding and sort of it's all because it's all related, right? You've got get it in writing because that's how we know what happened. If it isn't in writing, it didn't happen. We've got the med- malpractice issue. We've got the coding and billing issue. So 
We're going to cover all that today with Betsy. And Tothi, my guess is, is that it is a little bit uh, more involved and Betsy is super smart, very sharp. She's going to have some good tips is what I would bet comes out of this, uh, of, of your interview with her. So this is, I'm looking forward to this. Good. Yeah. She was wonderful to interview. And um, in addition to giving a lot of good guidance about E&M and surgical documentation um, in her talks and her consulting and our interview, Betsy has also created a pretty cool subscription-based service called Coding Intel. And you'll hear more about that in our interview. But hey, Mike, uh, before we get to that interview, guess what we got to do first? Oh, it is that time, isn't it, Tothi? You know I love this part of the show. Yep, it's every word nerd's favorite part, and you being word nerd, of course, it's your favorite, Mike. Word of the show. Bam. Excellent. <laughs> All right, lay it on me. What do you have for me this time, Tothi? Okay, well, today's word is attestation. And Mike, I have always loved this world word. It feels formal and really buttoned up to me, and it's kind of like an old timey word, which is why I like it. it. It kind of conjures up images of courtrooms and police stations in those great film noir classics of the 40s <laughs> and 50s. Like, like I can imagine the word attestation coming out of the mouth of Spencer Tracy or Burt Lancaster in that film Judgment at Nuremberg, which I totally love. And um, <laughs> I've of course heard many a coding consultant also use the word attestation, but that's what it sounds like to me. It, that's what I think. It, it really does just... Uh reek of wingback chairs and stale <laughs> cigar smoke, doesn't it? Yes. Well, is, is anyone will tell you, um, they're familiar with the, the term uh, attestation because it is uh, used frequently in, in legal uh, situations. But, um, but give us the formal definition. So the formal definition, according to Merriam-Webster, is attestation, the act or an instance of attesting to something such as proving the existence of something through evidence or an official verification of something as true or authentic. Right. So in legal situations, you uh, submit documents that have an attestation clause show that they're actually accurate and so forth. Um, you know, who really loves documentation I found hmm. is judge Judy. Boy, <laughs> there is, there is a woman you could win any case. If you bring in a slip of paper into that courtroom, let me tell you, cameras rolling, you whip out a piece of paper. It's all over for the other side. So <laughs> attestation, it's important not only for judge Judy, but for the rest of the uh, the legal profession and for the medical profession. So people can get paid and uh, be protected in the event that uh, someone out there wants to launch a, a med mal suit. Well, and not to belabor this beloved portion of our show, Mike, but here is one more reason to love this word. This way, I love this word. I think you will too, because it's a hist history thing. Um, the first known use of the word attestation in print was the year six, uh, 1560. And Ooh. I think you just got to love a word that's been used for more than 100, was used for more than 100 years before Johann Sebastian Bach was even born. Isn't that cool? Wow. That, that definitely goes no back word. a while. I mean, the ink on the Gutenberg Bibles must not have even been dried before they were throwing <laughs> the mobile, uh, you know, movable type in to uh, do the word attestation. Very cool. Nicely done, Tothi. All right. Well, I think it's time to launch into your fine interview of Betsy Nicoletti. Let's uh, cut our conversation and start listening to Betsy. Mm -hmm. 
I'm here with our colleague and friend, longtime friend, Betsy Nicoletti. Betsy, I'm so happy to have you here today, Betsy. I can't tell you. <laughs> Welcome to Sound Practice. <laughs> Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, good. Uh, well, we're going to have a good conversation today, and let me just tell everyone a little bit about you. Um, so Betsy is a speaker, writer, consultant with expertise in physician coding and compliance for medical practices, and her resource, Coding Intel, um, is an online library that provides education and resources for coders and medical practices, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's a subscription-based resource that I think all of you are going to want to know more about. Um, and Betsy is a Green Branch author. She's written The Field Guide to Physician Coding, 4th edition, and she's also written Auditing Physician Services, 3rd edition, um, but she's also written for lots of different journals that, and, and uh, practice management publications. Many of you have heard of Physician's Practice, Family Practice Management, Medscape, um, and, and she teaches, of course. She's a coding educator, and her sessions for medical practitioners, physicians, staff, managers are, and I can attest to this because I've heard you speak, Betsy. <laughs> um, they're fast-paced, engaging, she's funny, um, and they really help people increase their coding accuracy and clarity. So we're glad to have her on the podcast today, and I'm going to ask you, Betsy, to before we get started on our interview, where we talk about physician documentation, why don't you tell people a little bit about uh, your background, uh, you know, what, what kind of projects you do, and a little bit more about Coding Intel, so we can kind of set the stage with that. All right. Well, thank you. That's a very lovely introduction. I appreciate that. Uh, I use as a tagline, simplifying coding for medical practices. And of course, coding is so complicated, that's, mm, one does one best in simplifying coding. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that is the the primary thing that I do for coders, physicians, and for administrators, because it can be so complex to try and simplify it and clarify the key points. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> we and, all can use more simplification. <laughs> we can all use that. So in all of the writing and the webinars and, and presentation, that's my main goal is that everyone comes out and it's clear. Well, and so how, so tell us a little bit about coding Intel and how that can help with the simplification process and what kind of uh, resources are there? Well, resources is how I think of it. I think of it as a library um, and it's at the corner of coding and reimbursement because we know, of course, it's the AMA who develops the codes and explains how to use them. And then the payers, uh, have their own rules about payment. And what I've tried to put together is explanations about how you get paid for the most common services that are done in many medical practices and to answer the questions that are between the lines sometimes in the code book or in the Medicaid manual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because sometimes you read it, but you know, you could use a little more guidance. It's kind of like you got to tie a few concepts together to really even understand what you're reading to apply it properly. Yes, that's exactly it. Well, so good with that context of all this. I love this at the corner of coding and reimbursement. I feel like I'm going to maybe use that in the future and attribute that to you. It's a great way of explaining it. Um, so tell us how 
documentation fits in with this topic of coding, because obviously to build a code, you have to document, but how does it fit in with good coding and good compliance? What do physicians and practice leaders need to be aware of when it comes to documentation? Well, I'm going to go back and use the word you used, which is accurate coding. And I think that accurate coding can do two important things. It's going to drive revenue because you're going to collect all of the money you're entitled to collect. Mm -hmm. But it's also going to protect you in compliance because you're only going to collect the money you're entitled to collect and you're not going to be at risk to have to return all that money to the government or to your private payers. Mm -hmm. And of course, behind coding is the documentation. It's the record or the proof of what was done in the exam room or the operating room or in the hospital bed that uh, supports the codes that you've, that you've selected. When I, um, when I think about, and I do try and think about both revenue and compliance together, because my goal is not either to scare everyone to death so they never bill anything. Or, you know, <laughs> I once um, asked a group of physicians, so how can you reduce your compliance risk with Medicare? It was a rhetorical question I was yeah. going to want to tell them. And this woman surgeon raised her hand and said, don't bill Medicare. Which is true. Yeah. <laughs> but my goal is not to make everyone so afraid that they don't want to bill anything. And my goal isn't to just go rah, rah, rah revenue. We want it to be accurate. Mm -hmm. So if we look at a note, we want to be able to tell what was done, why that service was performed, and select the correct both procedure codes, the CPT codes, mm -hmm. and the diagnosis codes, the ICD-10 codes, that really validate um, the service. Well, and that's a, I think that's a good segue to, the, to this topic that I've been reading, actually reading and writing a lot about and talking to other um, coding educators and consultants, this idea about the payer policies and medical necessity and all of that being driven, I, this is my non-coder interpretation, uh, being driven by the documentation and making sure there's certain things in there that meet certain criteria. So how does that come into play, this idea of medical necessity and, and uh, diagnosis codes and documentation and getting paid? Connect the dots for us with that. Okay, so I love the topic of medical necessity. Uh, I sometimes joke, if I'm the patient and the physician orders a test, I think that's the definition of medical necessity. My doctor thinks I should have the test. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, that's not what the payers think. Right. And if I am thinking, if I stick with this example of a test, it's often very straightforward to find the clinical indications that support that test. Okay. So if you have a patient with um, anemia and bleeding, you're gonna support the need for an endoscopy. Or if you have a patient who's got uh, diabetes, you support the need for a blood glucose test or hemoglobin A1C. So for diagnostic tests and for some procedures, the concept of medical necessity can be found written down on your payer's website. Okay. So they'd go to the payer website to find this document that explains how you substantiate it? Yes. So, and I'll give one example. Say you have a patient who uh, um, needs bariatric surgery. 
all of the payers, including Medicare, have a policy about when you can do bariatric surgery. The patient has to have a certain BMI, they have to have certain um, comorbid conditions, they have to have failed at trying to lose weight before. So I can go online and print out that document and see whether my patient is eligible for bariatric surgery or not. Well, and oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so it's, it's, I shouldn't say it's simple, but it's available to us. Okay. Well, and then how would you take that and, so you've got the, the policies are there, how do I take that and, and con connect that dot, <clears throat> excuse me, and implement it operationally to make sure the documentation, the physician knows how to put that in the note or follow those guidelines? What's the yes. effective way? That is such a good question because we can't expect the physicians to know about all these payer policies and to be going and searching. It really is a staff job. Mm -hmm. um, for some lab tests, the edits could be built right into the system if you try to order a test and it's not a covered indication. Um, and most practices, it sounds really complicated because there are so many hundreds of policies, but most practices do a limited number of those policies and really can um, know them, have the person who's scheduling the test or scheduling surgeries know what those, those rules are. And I'm going to contrast the procedures or the diagnostic tests with this concept of medical necessity for an office visit or another type of evaluation and management service. And here I think we get into a little more trouble. So Medicare says that the medical necessity for performing a service is the overarching criterion for selecting that level of service, not just the volume of documentation. And we know why they say that, because our electronic health records make it so easy to document at a higher level. Yep. But here I think, Sometimes we coders um, can be too aggressive about medical necessity. Oh, it wasn't medically necessary for you to do that level of history and exam for this presenting problem. And if I'm going to talk to a physician about medical necessity in an office visit note, you know, should it have been a three or a four or a five, I hope that I have a medical director looking over my shoulder or, you know, helping with that discussion. Not that I can't have it, but as a, as a non-physician, I want to be careful when I say to a doctor, you know, it wasn't really necessary for you to listen to her heart and lungs. Right, right. E even though as the, the coder's thinking probably from the payer's, that payer definition, but I go back to what you initially said, which is I think of medical necessity when the doctor says, I need this test. The doctor said, I mean, it's medically, ne medically necessary. So there's, you've got to ride that line of remembering, remembering that, I think, if you're on the business side. Yes. And I, and I, 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 sometimes our coders, we try to protect the practice by thinking like the payer. And of course, we do, we don't want to be sending out claims that we know are going to just come back and bite us. Mm -hmm. um, right. But we, we, Whenever there's that kind of an issue, and this isn't always possible in all different organizations and practices, I hope there's a medical director who's looking at that and helping to interpret issues of medical necessity when it's not black and white like a diagnostic test. Mm -hmm. Good point. Well, 
you, you mentioned E&M and we've talked about procedures and I know you've, you've reviewed a lot of chart notes for both or chart notes for the E&M and, and op notes and things like that. So why don't you talk about what do you find when you're looking at notes, whether it's an audit or, or whatever situation, what do you find are the most common weaknesses you see in physician documentation? What are the things you see over and over that physicians should be aware of and, and listeners should be aware of that are risk areas or that you can say, hey, let's make sure that you guys are doing this right because I know a lot of you out there, uh, you know, I see it as a common theme, as a problem. So I want to say I think that a lot of electronic health records have gotten better. Oh, that's good news. <laughs> yes. Not all of them, but you know, I remember some of the early days printing out a 20-page note because something yes. was dumped into it but the kitchen sink. Yep. And, and, and everything but my high school transcript was in that note. <laughs> and I think our templates have gotten better that we don't just dump I don't say dumb. We don't just import information that wasn't needed for today's visit in there. And I think that was a tendency in the early days. Mm -hmm. That's before people would really customize those EMR templates, right? And so they just keep pulling it forward. But do I hear you saying um, they're kind of giving a little bit of a uh, kudos to generally that the templates are getting better. So that must mean practices are fine tuning those. So that's, that's good. I think so. I think they've gotten better. And what I would do, if I think about a risk area or common weaknesses, I would be looking at my templates for things that we did in the office or, you know, minor procedures, E&M notes, and make sure that that we have fine-tuned them so that they present the information that's needed for that visit without um, having a lot of extraneous information in the notes. Mm -hmm. That's a great action step. So take a look at those templates for E&M codes and minor procedures and make sure they're customized to yes. your specialty and the way, the way your physician sees the patient. Good. Other, so, okay, so we're getting better, not as much volume in terms of 20-page notes anymore. Um, what other areas of risk would you point people to that are, may still be an issue? I do think the use of modifiers for coding. So when we're performing two services on the same day, an E&M service and a procedure or two procedures that, uh, you know, who, who adds the modifiers really varies in practices. In some practices, the physician or MP or PA is adding modifiers. In my opinion, that's a really good use for coders to look at the note and add the modifiers. Um, And I think we get in trouble with always and never. We always bill an office visit when we do this procedure, or Mm -hmm. we never bill an office visit when we do this procedure, because sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. So use of modifiers can be a risk area. And even when practices have coders, I sometimes see that we're making mistakes. I would look at that. Okay. And how, how would they do that? Give me some, t- give our listeners some tips for, can they do that internally? Do they need to have an expert come in? How can they assess whether the modifiers are a risk area or not, if they're using them properly or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, 
I, I always think a lot of review can happen internally. Okay. If you're in a big group and you've got a number of coders, then you can check one another's work. And uh, when there is disagreement, maybe that is where you, of course, we could all be agreeing on the wrong thing, but let's assume, <laughs> that, let's assume that's not the case. When there is disagreement, so, you know, and there's always going to be some disagreement about the use of, say, modifier 25 or yeah. modifier 59. But if there's significant disagreement, a, so, a small subsection of notes could go out to an external auditor. You know, there's not a lot of extra money in physician practices these days. We don't want to willy-nilly send out a big 100-record audit if we don't need to. But if there is significant disagreement, if there's a high denial rate, mm -hmm. when use modifiers on a claim, that would make me nervous. Um, or if we looked and saw that we had rarely used modifiers, that would make me nervous as well. And that might call for an external review. So that's, I like this idea that you would, so you've got, you're doing this internally, then you would put all that, whatever you find or whatever, you put that in your compliance plan, right? So you could mm -hmm. do that internally. But if you've got some questions, maybe an annual take a small sampling and work with somebody like, is that something that you would do where you could work with a practice and they would send you a set number of notes and you could, you know, tell them which way the wind is blowing as it were, if you, and then dig deeper, of course, if you felt needed, it was needed, but maybe that small sampling is, helps people see, okay, we're doing things right. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep up with your coding education and your updates, things like that. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I can do that. There are a lot of, um, a lot of our colleagues that we know could do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think that um, there's no requirement to have an external audit. And if you're doing an internal audit and it's all going well, but it doesn't hurt to have a second pair of eyes looking mm -hmm. at things. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe on an annual basis or something. Or certainly if you think there's an issue or you've had a lot of turnover maybe in the coding and billing department and just all, I'm thinking like if I were a manager coming into a new, to a practice, I just took a job, um, maybe as some listeners are, or they're new in that role or they're just really trying to learn more about coding and billing, I might say, wow, you know, there's been a lot of turnover there. Have we lost some of our experts? What do the audits look like? And then maybe that's also an opportunity where you might want to have somebody externally take a look so that you can have some certainty that things are operating well in that department as you retrain people after the turnover and things like that. Because yeah. nothing worse than losing all your institutional memory when people, people leave, right? That's absolutely the case. And <laughs> this, this is a little bit of an aside, but I've worked with clients where, you know, they've lost the revenue person and the lead coder. And where I become the institutional memory. And I'll say, remember we had that problem with the site <laughs> six years ago? They're like, no, we don't remember. <laughs> we sent a lot of money back to the government, remember? <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, it's always good to point, need somebody to point those things out. Might as well be you, Betsy. Well, <laughs> well listen, um, we're going to talk with Betsy about some of the specifics of documenting, documenting efficiently and some of your secrets for staying on top of things, but, uh, Betsy. But before we get to that, let's take a, a quick break and we'll be, we'll be right back with Betsy Nicoletti. Hey, Tothi. 
How long have you been reading Green Branch Publishing's Journal of Medical Practice Management? Oh my gosh, a long time, Mike. I was first introduced to it in the early 90s when I was just starting my career. And I always like the thoughtful nature of the articles because they often go deep. They're not just soundbite pieces. Not at all. No fluff here. They tackle tough topics like mergers, embezzlement, office drama, physician employment agreements, and how to manage chronically overworked teammates. One reason I recommend the journal to my clients is because the articles are more than just a skinny little dip. I totally agree. And it's always been in my top three recommendations for what practice leaders should be reading on a regular basis. You know, not only can they read the journal, they can uh, submit articles to it. That's so true. And it's another great thing about the Journal of Medical Practice Management. The articles are written by a mix of thought leaders, experts, and people who are currently running physician offices. So the articles have an authenticity. And you don't always find that these days with so much business and practice management content out there that's actually a mask for marketing material. Oh, that is so annoying. When you get into an article, you think you're going to get some quality information only to try to be uh, sold in paragraph six. Very annoying. Nothing that would ever happen in the journal. So <clears throat> in a sea of practice management resources, the journal really stands out as a high quality, uh, credible uh, source for information. And uh, by the way, it's been published for 35 years. Green Branch just announced its birthday. Happy birthday. Oh. Happy birthday, Green Branch uh, Journal. So if listeners want to subscribe, how would they do that, Mike? Very simple. They can just go to greenbranch.com. When they get there, there's a picture of the journal right on the homepage. Click on that image of the journal, and it will take you to the place to subscribe. It's just that easy. Bam, you're done. Okay, we're back with Betsy Nicoletti now, consultant, coding educator, author, and uh, founder of Coding Intel, which is a subscription-based online uh, library of resources and tools for coders. Um, Betsy's talked about, we've talked about some of the risk areas of documentation, how um, I'm delighted to hear actually that maybe EHRs are getting a little bit better. Uh, people out there are getting better with the use of, or the customization of their EHR templates. That was some good news. So um, let's talk about, Betsy, some of the tips and tricks that you've got, if, for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, to, for making documentation, uh, compliant documentation efficient. You know, kind of this process stuff, because I think a lot of people say, well, oh, there's, you know, documentation is so laborious and, you started out by saying you are a fan of simplifying. So tell us a little bit about how you might suggest to a client how they can simplify the process of documenting. Well, I think that there has been a lot of misunderstanding about how much you need in a note to get to a certain level of service. And that that has contributed to this um, extraneous information and bloating of notes. And so I think the first thing I would say is to start with a clinical framework and ask your clinicians what you need in this note, what parts of the record are working well for you, and what's slowing you down. Oh, I have to do 12 clicks to get past the review of systems, even when I don't want to put anything in. Mm -hmm. So I would start with a clinical thought process. What do I need clinically in this note in order 
in order to show the procedure that I did, what the patient's diagnosis code was and the reason for the procedure, and that I performed the service. And then I would try to add in the billing component. So, well, doctor, you didn't tell us if you went into the joint or not, or you um, didn't tell us what the reason for the lab test was. You know, then I would go back and look at it from a from a billing and coding framework. But I think if we if we turn this around, and that's what so many physicians are distressed about, is that it seems like billing and coding drives the templates. Mm -hmm. Turn it around and try and go back to a clinical focus. I think that will help. I also think reminding clinicians that they are essentially, and I hate to say it because it's so uh, trite, but they're essentially telling us a story in this encounter record. And are, are there ways that we can uh, tell that story in a way that's more effective? Mm -hmm. um, some specialties find that working with scribes is helpful. Unfortunately, it's the, the groups that find that the most helpful are maybe some of the higher paid specialties. And we want to, we wish we want to help all specialties, but certainly door, dermatology, ophthalmology, those are uh, organizations where using a scribe has made it much, much easier for, for physicians. And then the last problem area I'd like to talk about, I wish I had a really good solution for, and that's the problem with problem lists. Oh. So what happens with a problem list is every time you see a patient and you, um, it, it works differently in different uh, EMRs. In some EMRs, every time you see a patient and you sign, assign a diagnosis, that gets added to their problem list. Okay. So now a problem list is going to have chronic sinusitis, acute sinusitis, uh, chronic bronchitis, things that we might not want to keep on a problem list. An acute problem, for example. Okay. And then it takes a clinician a lot of time to clean up that problem list. And a more relevant example might be a patient who's got um, diabetes with nephropathy. And also on their problem list, they have diabetes uncomplicated. Well, if they have a complication of their diabetes, the old diagnosis code of diabetes uncomplicated should go away and the more accurate code should be left on the, uh, on the problem list. One of the difficulties is that cleaning up a problem list really can usually only be done by uh, a, a clinician. clinician. Probably right, yeah, physician yeah. or the nurse practitioner. It's really time consuming, but if I had a wish list, it would be a way we could get the problem lists cleaned up. So let me ask you, because as a non-clinician and a non-coder, is the problem list something that has to be current, like, like, for example, your medication reconciliation, your meds list should always be current. At every visit, does the problem list need to be cleaned up and, and shored up so it's accurate? So you add and remove things from previous or no? Yeah, in a perfect world, yes. In reality, the medication list is often updated by a staff member mm -hmm. and the clinician just doesn't have time to go through. Uh, and, and part of it does depend on the EMR because in some EMRs, you can assign an acute problem, pharyngitis, without that appearing on the problem list, whereas in some, it, that's not the case. But the more accurate the patient's problem list is, um, the easier it's going to be for everyone to care for that patient. I see. 
So the bottom line is in terms of the, knowing that time scarcity that physicians have, that problem list is going to get cleaned up every couple of visits or something like that? What's, what's the realistic answer there? How about never? Is never good for you? <laughs> well, it's, it's realistic. <laughs> so, but it's a great goal. <laughs> I think some groups try to do it primary care at the annual visit. Okay, annual visit. Okay, great. Yeah. Oh, and I, I wanted to mention, um, you, meant, you brought up the issue of Scribe. I'm glad you did because you mentioned a couple specialties and I've also done some um, work with uh, interviews with orthopedic surgeons who use um, Scribes. And that's another specialty where you're right. It, it really does have to be the right balance. But if you're in a specialty where you've got to see so many patients, I know a lot of hand surgeons, um, joint surgeons, they tend to find that they do pay for themselves and even a little more. So they're able to use them. So it, it really does vary by specialty. But I've seen in orthopedics, they, that seems to be a way that really does help with the documentation because the physician mm -hmm. can go back to being a physician and um, just really have the scribe support him or her that way. Right. Yeah. Not, not spend their day doing data entry, essentially. Right. Right. Okay, good. So good. Those are some good tips. Um, hey, any educational, and I'm also going to ask you to give me a little bit more about coding Intel here, but are there any educational resources that you think every billing and coding team should have at their disposal? You know, something online or a book or Tell me a little bit about what you think could help them keep up as well as maybe not necessarily only technical stuff, but maybe there's some other educational resources that you think would be helpful for them to um, be reading. So of course, we've got to update our CPT and ICD-10 resources every single year. And many groups now have access to this online um, through their e electronic health record. Coders need the books because of all the editorial comments and the do not report and use also in, in, the, in the CPT book themselves. So there's no substitute for CPT resources. Okay. In a you gotta go to the source. You gotta go to the source. Uh, and in a multi-specialty practice, you can get access to these resources through your um, software or on paper, but I like the CPT changes. So uh, for this year, it's CPT changes 2019, an insider's view, and then the CPT assistant, uh, which is a journal publication. It, these cost money, and sometimes small practices don't feel like they can afford them, uh, but those resources are just so helpful. If you're in a multi-big group, multi-specialty, you've got to have them. Now, you can get those through your coding software. So there are a lot of pieces of coding software out there, you know, Encoder Pro, Optum, um, Code Correct, where the additional resource that you get are, is bundling, um, status indicators, can an assistant at surgery be billed with that or not? Um, what modifier should I use if they're bundled or can I use no modifier? Mm -hmm. and, Again, those cost money. There's a subscription service you have to pay, a license, a per license for those. But if you're a surgical practice, it's just the cost of doing business. You've got to have it. Okay. And those often, of course, for an additional fee, you can get access to these CPT resources. 
How about webinars or things from Medicare, things like that? Are there good resources that are low cost or no cost for folks to educate themselves? So the MACs will have ask the contractor, and the, the MAC is the Medicare Administrative Contractor. Okay. Ask the contractor webinars, and um, sometimes if there's a new service like chronic care management, they'll put a webinar on about those. Okay. I'm not crazy about those. Sometimes the MACs interpret things in ways that I think is conservative or... So, I, but the, but those are available, and if that's all you have, you can afford, then you can do those. And then our specialty societies have webinars. Um, I'll, I guess I can say the names of please. You know, our friends yeah. at Green Branch, they have been doing. They have some webinars on demand. We okay. know Cohen Associates have webinars. I do webinars through Coding Intel. And then, of course, the AAPC and AHIMA have webinars. That's right. Okay, so these are all these are great. So we've got AHIMA, AAPC, Green Branch has some, Karen's Upcoin Associates has some, you have some. So there are a whole variety of probably price points, specialty specificity um, as well. So it really depends on w w the type of practice somebody is, is working in to see which fits their needs the best. Although I, I would imagine AHIMA and AAPC have a broad range. Of specialties because they're so big, yes. right? And specialty specific webinars are so good. So if you're an orthopedist, you want to uh, you want to be listening to someone who's an expert on orthopedics. Mm -hmm. and there's there's one other thing. There are some free webinars available, and those webinars are available because a software company wants to market to you. But if you're willing to be marketed to, um, you can often find a free webinar from one of the software companies who, you know, you use it as a marketing tool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and sometimes, you know, I've, I've attended some of those and you do have, well, you can tune out at the sales pitch at the end if you want, but oftentimes they'll have a, an expert and they will have some good pearls, you know, so sometimes it can be worth your time for sure. Uh, but yes, I hear what you're saying because, um, you have to, you just have to know that going in, <laughs> what it is, right? Know, right. Uh, know what you're getting into. Um, speaking of tech, are there any uh, tech tools that could make this easier? And start by talking about Coding Intel. I mean, it's not a tech tool per se, but it's an online library. Tell us what's there. What would people, what would be useful as far as educational resources should, if people chose to um, subscribe to your, your Coding Intel product? Well, that's nice of you to ask about it. Um, we do do monthly webinars, and if you're a subscriber, those webinars are free. And um, I always apply to the AAPC to get a CEU for those. I've never been turned down. I can't guarantee, guarantee that, of course. There are billing guides. So uh, the most recent one that I did was a dermatology billing guide, and it's about 50 pages of explanation of the procedures that dermatologists do and you know some tips about documenting the E&M services and the exam for dermatologists so there are some long-form billing guides what's risk coding how are physician services paid incident to services that kind of thing and then I put together some quick cheat sheets or reference guides those can be helpful to to download and look at so example one of the ones i did recently was for hospice um a hospice billing guide what modifiers you would put on okay 
And then I want to go back to, if we're going to talk about software, I guess I jumped ahead, but the, the, if you are in a multi-specialty group or you're billing for any surgical services, you need to have coding software. I talk to some coders who say, well, the practice won't pay. Boy, you're going to pay one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So You're going to pay a lot or a little. <laughs> pay for your coders to have the resources they right. need. Uh, what kind and what kind of coding software are you is this the you're talking about like code correct and things like that yeah and coder pro coder pro and coder pro okay yeah. yep and so just help me step me through you're, we're calling them coding software but it relates to documentation because it says what kinds of things need to be documented to support the code does it tell you so, that I, I, some some of them have uh, lay descriptions of the procedure so that you can compare if you if you're not clinical you can compare what was documented okay um, it helps you know about the use of modifiers um, it gives you ex some ex sometimes it'll help you with the covered indication the ICD-10 codes that might be required if you're doing a procedure. So if you're doing a procedure and you look at your documentation and you don't have one of those codes, you know you're not going to get paid for it. Got it. So it's got all that good stuff. Well, so the coding, the coding software is really essential, especially in a large group. And um, I think your coding Intel resource sounds great. I mean, a monthly webinar plus billing guides plus other tools. So um, I would encourage listeners to check it out. We'll put a link to Coding Intel and Betsy's website in the show notes so that you can check it out um, on your own on your own time. And let me, uh, we're going to kind of start moving toward the exit here. I'd like to know, um, let's say, because we've talked about a lot of tips and, and um, guidance and what, what you're finding in documentation. What happens when uh, a staff person, a manager, a coder, somebody finds that a physician is having trouble with documentation. How do they approach the doctor? How do they start that conversation? What are some ways to get that physician to do, to be more compliant? Um, but especially when you're a staff person and you're talking to a doctor, like what guidance do you have for listeners on that? How do we approach that it? That doesn't always go well, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's, it, and so, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like, I thought it was brilliant how you, you talked about the, um, uh, start with the physicians, you know, when we talk about documentation and, and the template customization, start with the physicians and say, what needs to be in this note clinically, and then go into the billing and coding. So that was a really important nuance of, of meeting the physician on a clinical, on the clinical topic first is there a similar approach this with this topic of of helping them understand how to document better more more compliantly so i, I think about this in two ways one physicians um are scientists you know they all have this science background or they wouldn't have gotten into medical school and they respond well to data and sometimes showing them comparative data. Uh, this is easier in a big practice. So if you have 10 orthopedists and one of them is an outlier in terms of coding and documentation, mm -hmm. then comparing that data can be helpful. 
Um, there is some national data. Unfortunately, none of this data is easy to find or free. But if you, if you again, if you're, if you're a one-person group, you don't need, maybe don't need to do this. But if you're in a multi-specialty group, it's worth it to find the ENM frequency data. Mm-hmm. It's worth it to look and at. Uh, and compare your clinicians with the national data. So that would be the first thing I would do. And I think Karen had, Karen Zupko has some of that data. There. Yes, actually, now that you raised that point, um, there's something called the ENM Analyzer is what it oh. is, where they've taken, so that's available. I, in fact, maybe I'll put that link on the, on the show notes as well. It's a very inexpensive product. I mean, like, I don't know, 150 bucks or something, I think, mm-hmm. something like that, where you enter your your frequency for the ENM codes for each physician, and it'll compare it in a line graph automatically with the state. You're talking about the state and national data for, from CMS. So that's one tool that listeners might want to um, to use. Any any ad, other advice though? Um, you know, so you've got the data. They're scientists. That's great. Keep going. Give us a little more. Um, Give us a little, uh, some other tips for how to handle those physicians that need improvement, Betsy. So I think the next thing is to think about the process. And we always want to approach our clinicians very respectfully. And if there are, you know, a few changes that were specific, this, you build it as a level four, and I audit it as a level three. It would have been a level four if you had added A, B, and C to it. Mm. This is missing to try and, um, uh, take out some of the emotion. Be careful about the words. You overbuild this. Uh, so I, I always want to show what was missing. If there are issues of medical necessity, and I've talked about how that was gray with an E&M note, mm-hmm. um, you want, what I usually say is, it did meet the requirements in the history and the exam. The medical decision-making was lower and if I'm using medical decision-making, this would have audited as a lower code. And then it's up to the practice to decide, are they going to bill it at the higher or the lower level? Now, if you really have a problem clinician, they don't get their notes done. Uh, everything's a high level for them. Uh, everything's copied and pasted from a prior note. I mean, if it's a real problem, then a coder has to send that up the ranks. So to the practice administrator, to the medical director, to the compliance director, so that it doesn't become really personal between the coder and the physician, but that it becomes part of a process of feedback and improvement. That's a great, that's a great tip. Um, Know when, know when, know when that you can't, handle it anymore. You, you've, you've shown the data, you've talked about what they did well and what points, you know, how this would have audited, um, what level it would have been. Now, if it's still, you're running up against a wall, it's time to escalate that to um, the cl- compliance officer administrator so that they can step in. And that's, that's a great suggestion. So, all right. Well, listen, we're coming to the end of our time here, Betsy. It's been wonderful. Tell us, do you have any closing thoughts of Physicians and documentation, what they need to know. What, what, uh, what else do you have to say before we close things off here today? 
Um, I guess my, my only closing thought would be to continue to think about it clinically rather than from a billing and coding perspective and document what you need to document for that patient. Mm -hmm. Let the codes fall where they may. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here, folks. Check out codingintel.com. We'll put it in the show notes, a link um, over to Betsy's site, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Betsy. Thank you. Well, Tothi, we've come to the end of another fine episode of Sound Practice. Your interview with Betsy really put a few documentation details into perspective uh, for me. I can attest uh -huh, to the fact that I took away a few pearls of wisdom uh, from Betsy. Oh, good. And nice use of that word, point Sicopolis for this episode. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I hope our listeners felt the same way about those pearls. And how about that coding Intel service? Isn't that a cool idea? Oh, way cool. We're going to put a link into the show notes for folks so they can check it out and consider uh, subscribing to that service uh, themselves. Uh, I'm sure the content and webinars Betsy puts out each month will be helpful to physicians and staff or our, our listeners out there to keep them on their toes when it comes to coding and documentation. Yeah, no doubt. And if you aren't ready for coding Intel, you can sign up for Betsy's blog for free. We've got that in the show notes too. She covers great coding topics. I, I think pretty much weekly she puts out a different, a new post. And when you sign up, you get a 20 page global surgery billing guide for free. Oh, very, very nice. People always like free, free stuff. Way they, cool. They do indeed. So thanks for listening to Sound Practice, everyone. If you like today's episode, please tell your colleagues about our little podcast. They can listen from our website, soundpracticepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. And we hope that uh, you'll subscribe and suggest that they subscribe and that you'll review us on Apple or Google as well. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com. But man and Robin, Red Book Kapow.